0: Well, if you'd please turn with me to the third chapter of 1 Peter. We will be speaking on the the first seven verses this evening. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in tonight's passage, Peter continues his practical instructions as to how to adorn the gospel in home life. For if you'll remember from last week's sermon, in Greco-Roman culture, home life wasn't just a private matter. There was a divine order to home life in which the man of the house was owed obedience and his wife, children, and slaves owed their own particular duties of respect and submission to him. Living out these roles was considered the basis for a strong, orderly, and prosperous society. Now, Greco-Roman culture, of course, taught some true things about the family. And yet there are important points where the gospel subverts Greco-Roman teaching as well. In particular, the gospel sets all people free in Christ. Women, slaves, and children do not need the man of the house to mediate their relationship with God. For all people who have faith in Christ have a direct relationship to him as their mediator. All people are responsible to God directly. And yet Christ also sets us free from obedience to the law as the means by which we are made right with God. But this freedom does not leave the Christian as an anarchist doing whatever he or she wants to do. And yet this is exactly what the Greco-Roman person fears when one spouse comes to faith in Christ and the other doesn't. For a woman to worship Christ rather than her husband's God appears as an act of rebellion against him. If a man worships Christ while his wife doesn't, it means that he's lost control over his household. Well, both situations were thought to tear apart the fabric of society. And so Peter instructs wives and husbands, how they can behave in such a way that any such accusations will be proven baseless. In other words, he teaches how a Christian's conduct in marriage can proclaim the gospel in a hostile environment. Now, a few words are in order about how Peter's teachings here can be misused. For Peter is not intending to comment on the nature of masculinity and femininity as though verse 4 says that being gentle and quiet are feminine and verse 7 says that understanding is masculine. No, Peter is simply giving a practical guide to godly conduct and attitudes. This passage also nowhere excuses men who abuse their wives, nor does it command that women must stay in abusive marriages. Abuse is a serious sin, And as we'll see in verse 7, God treats it as such. This passage instead obligates husbands to treat their wives with kindness and respect. But with that said, it would be easy to turn tonight's message into a catalog of such misinterpretations of this passage. I'll briefly mention a few more as we go along, but God didn't put these words in the Bible so we could seek out all the caveats and counterexamples. He put these words here to teach his people how to have marriages that honor him and communicate the gospel, even in the event that one spouse is an unbeliever. And so that positive instruction will be the focus of tonight's message. And so we're going to look at this passage in its two main aspects. First, the instruction for wives to be subject to their own husbands. And second, for husbands to live in an understanding way with their wives. Now, wives in Greco-Roman culture were expected to worship their husband's gods and not even to have any friends except those whom she shared in common with him. Well, you can see how worshiping another god would be understood as rebellion and how going out to join other believers in worship might give the impression she's stepping out on her husband. And so verses 1 through 6 give practical commands how a wife can be faithful to God while minimizing the appearance of undermining her husband. Peter teaches that wherever possible, marriages should conform to local social expectations. And yet nevertheless, we find important ways that biblical teaching on marriage differs from Greco-Roman thought. Now the first is that Peter teaches a wife's subjection to her husband is a matter of faithfulness to the true God. This responsibility is indicated by the word likewise here in verse one. It means in the same way. It calls back to the command in verse 18 for slaves to be subject to their masters on account of the fear of God. Now being part of a stable and prosperous society is a good thing, but the first and best motivation for being subject to your husband is the fear of God and a love for his law. A second Most, if not all, Greco Roman teaching only addressed the husband, for it was his responsibility to teach the wife, the children, and the slave to to obey him and to take their part in living out this social order. But Peter instead puts the ball into the wife's court. He doesn't teach that husbands have the right to compel their wife's submission. He teaches instead that she is responsible to freely offer it. And it should be noted that both of these observations show that not only wives of unbelieving husbands are commanded to be subject to them, for what Peter writes is true for all marriages, even though it has special application for wives with unbelieving husbands. Now, being subject to your own husband refers primarily to obedience but it also has important implications for an attitude of cheerfulness, love, and respect toward your husband. Yet we have to remember that this is, quote only, unquote, an action and a heart attitude. It's not a commentary on the value of women, their capabilities, or their intrinsic nature. Scripture provides ample material for dozens of sermons about capable, strong, and godly women who did great and important things for God. So being subject to a husband is not about the nature of women, but it's in the nature of the marriage relationship. And yet with that said, ma- marriage is not solely defined by submission either. And important passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 point to the mutuality of the uh, marriage relationship, the duties that husbands and wives both owe to each other. Now, before we move on, we should also have a few words about the fact wives are commanded to be subject to their own husbands. For it's now we are taught that women in general are to be subject to men in general. And as New Testament scholar Karen Jobes points out, it also suggests that the couple, each couple, is free to consider how best to work out this general command in the details of their own marriage. Now, Peter gives two motivations for wives to be subject to their husbands. And the first is the possibility of converting an unbelieving husband. And the second is living in imitation of the holy women of the Old Testament. And sandwiched in between these two, there are some general practical instructions as to what that subjection would look like. So first we look at the conversion of unbelieving husbands, which Peter writes about here in verse 1. It's practical instruction for how you can give good testimony for the gospel in a society that is hostile to the gospel. This is often best done by affirming the good things society values, and yet also affirming that in that society, these good things have become twisted, and that the true fulfillment of a society's good longings are found only in Christ. I've heard this referred to sometimes as a constructive subversion. Subversion. And it's a concept that, that is reflected in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes that Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom, and yet that true power and true wisdom are not found in Jewish or Greek thought. They're found instead in the crucified Christ. Now, in Greco-Roman society, it was considered shameful for a wife to instruct her husband Now for a wife to convert from her husband's gods to worship Jesus Christ at all was shameful enough to him. And for her to instruct him as well would be to add insult to injury. And so what Peter is saying here is if she converts to Christ and continues to be subject to her husband, maybe even to do a better job of it, she can show that not only is she still a good wife, she can show that she even has better reasons to be a good wife than she did before her conversion. All without needlessly, and that's an important word, needlessly, violating the standards of their society. Now, Peter is counseling the use of wisdom and discretion in proclaiming the gospel, and even in proclaiming it silently when needed. Now, we all need boldness in proclaiming the gospel, And God gives plenty of opportunities to do so with words. But we also need wisdom and discretion to proclaim the gospel in the ways best suited to the society where we live. Healthy marriages and healthy families spoke loudly in the ancient world, and they still do today. And that's what we read here of faithful women married to men who do not believe the gospel. Their husbands may be won over for faith in Christ even without a word. In the Confessions, Augustine writes of his own mother, Monica. He says, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, he's speaking to God. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. And finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly spans, she gained him for you. Now we turn to the practical instruction for how to live this way. For we have here in verse 2 that attention is paid to respectful and pure conduct. And again, we see that godly fear makes its appearance. For that word fear in the Greek is the word behind respectful here in the ESV. Godly fear is a central feature of Christian living. Living in godly fear has its attractive qualities. It'll change the way that we act toward other people. But most of all, in godly fear, we demonstrate that God is the one who motivates our good conduct. And it puts limits on the subjection of wives to their husbands. For we cannot honor anybody above God or do the will of anybody else when it is in conflict with His. Pure conduct is also mentioned, a word that references God's own moral purity. We read a similar concept in 1 John chapter 3, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Conduct yourself toward your husband by living in accordance with what God commands in Scripture, living in imitation of his own goodness. Peter then turns to a more detailed description of such respectful and pure conduct he counsel's not external adornment but inward adornment for the godly way of life is not external it isn't about external things it isn't about how beautiful or you can dress or how beautiful you can make your appearance now in context it should be clear that Peter is not saying that it's wrong period to dress up or to do your hair it's all right to do these things, but what he is saying is that these things have no significance to the inner life where godly conduct is found and which is what speaks to the glory of Christ. Instead, in true adorning is in the hidden person of the heart, and something so wonderful about this adorning is that it is imperishable. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.25 that athletes receive an imperishable wreath, but we The athletes receive a perishable wreath, but we receive an imperishable. Well, like a laurel wreath that dries up and turns brown, physical beauty fades with age, but inner godliness never fades. For inner godliness comes from salvation, which Peter calls imperishable back in chapter 1, verse 4. Now, a gentle spirit is part of this inner adornment. The Greek word here is often translated meek or gentle in other passages of Scripture. It means that you're not impressed with yourself, not demanding your own way, not puffed up or expecting the royal treatment at all times. A quiet spirit is another element of this inner adornment. Now, this isn't about being seen and not heard or never speaking up in the marriage relationship. It's a reference to not being a busybody, not being easily perturbed, not given to anger. quietness doesn't stick your nose where it doesn't belong and doesn't seek attention. Now, Scripture does not portray gentleness and quietness as only feminine qualities, for these attributes are very precious in God's sight for both men and women. For Christ describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart, And in Galatians 5, we read that gentleness is an element of the fruit of the Spirit that is born in all believers by the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 that all believers should aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. And yet in the situation Peter is addressing, they are especially appropriate character attributes to emphasize in the conduct of a wife toward her husband. And yet there's an important lesson here for the guys. For it shows how godly character is what you should treasure most in your wife, what you should look for most in your future wife. Outward beauty is a fine thing, but it is only skin deep. And so we should all delight in the things that God treasures. And a gentle and quiet spirit are precious to him. Shouldn't they be precious to us too? But where are you going to find these character attributes? They're found only in union with Christ, only as Christ makes you like him. For Christ is the only one who reflected pure godliness in his conduct. He alone is the one who is perfectly gentle and lowly. And he reflected this character on the cross. It is the Holy Spirit who alone is able to pour out these character attributes onto us and refine them in us. And so seek the Lord and his strength by hearing his word, by offering him your prayers. He will give you gentleness and quietness if you seek them in him. And So moving out of the center of this sandwich between character attributes and motivations, we turn in verses five through six to one more motivation to be subject to your husbands in this way. For in so doing, you imitate the holy women of old, now, the scriptures are full of examples of women who comported themselves the way that Peter describes, is submitting to their own husbands. And many of these women are uh, important figures in the history of redemption. Submission to one's own husband is an element of both holiness and of living out trust in God. And verse 6 highlights the story of Sarah, She knew God's promise that she would give birth to the promised child, and yet she still had doubts. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, the Lord promises to Abraham that within the year she will have a son. Being 90 years old, Sarah laughs to herself and says, "'After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure?' She may have doubted God's promise for a time, and yet, even in the moment of doubt of God, she demonstrates respect for her husband. And throughout the course of her life, whatever happened, she submitted to Abraham and she followed where he led. Whatever else she did, right or wrong, she respected her husband. And in the end, despite her own struggles with doubt, she features in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews 11. And she appears here in 1 Peter in connection with her dutiful submission to her husband. And when Peter says that, that, that you are her children, Peter is saying that you stand in this tradition of historic virtue if you do the same for your own husband. But Scripture contains many other women who respected their husbands as well. Consider Hannah, the wife of Elkanah and the mother of the prophet Samuel. There's also Abigail, who became King David's wife, but was introduced to us as the wife of foolish Nabal. A consistent feature of godly women in the Old Testament stories is, for those who were married, the way that they submitted to their husbands. And yet when you read their stories, you find that they all feared God first of all, and that left them fearless of anything anybody else might do to them. Out of this fearlessness, they also submitted to their husbands, but they did so in such different ways. No two of their stories are exactly alike. And so we all must use the wisdom and discretion God has given us to know how to respond to different situations in a way that honors him. Not every marriage will look exactly the same. Uniformity is not the standard, but faithfulness is. And so there we have the command for wives to be subject to their own husbands. But it is no less important to look at the conduct of husbands toward their wives. Although Peter does it in fewer words here, one verse compared to six, it is still so critically important to the health of families that they be led by God-honoring husbands. And here in verse 7, we have the command for husbands to live in an understanding way with their wives. And guess what? Again, we have this word likewise. Again, a reference back to 2.18 where slaves are to be subject to their masters in godly fear. The same fear of God is meant to teach husbands how to live in an understanding way with their wives. Now, a literal translation here would read, live with your wives according to knowledge. We most often find the Greek word here translated as the word knowledge, we see it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in places such as Proverbs 2.6. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. In this context, knowledge is synonymous with wisdom. And as we know, Scripture teaches that wisdom is primarily a moral category. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. Wisdom is a reflection of God's character. And so we can look to his example as we consider how husbands ought to live with their wives in an understanding way. For God is not harsh with you. He is slow to anger. He is gentle with his people. In Isaiah 40, he cries out for tender speech to Jerusalem. It says later on that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. All that God does is for the good of his people, and he wisely works all things for your good. Does the book of Proverbs portray wisdom as easily angered or easily offended? No, wisdom is patient and kind. Proverbs is chock-a-block with passages such as, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Truly, wise living is gentle and caring. And Christ, as the head of his church, is himself wise in this way, as he leads his church. He is very gentle with you. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Everything that he requires from you is for your good. And he himself provides the strength to do it. Paul writes in Philippians 4:13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And as the leader of his people, he laid down his life for you. He gives you the precious gift of salvation, and he makes you strong and wise to accomplish everything he requires of you. And so consider the way a husband who leads his family this way. Consider how he would look to Greco-Roman society. Imagine a man who leads his house well without resorting to threats or violence, whose wife and children submit to him willingly because he is good to them, not because he has to demand it. A few years ago, I was watching a YouTube clip of Mr. Rogers, and he was explaining something to the television audience. I forget what exactly. But he wanted us to imagine something. So at the beginning of this clip, he says, close your eyes. And I, a grown man in his 30s, closed my eyes without hesitation. That's authority. That's the kind of authority that is earned through gentleness and through wisdom. Peter then goes on to give three further motivations to exercise this wisdom. He speaks of the wife as a weaker vessel deserving of greater honor of her position as a co-heir of grace and of the necessity of this wisdom for your prayers to be heard by God. Now first, the wife is the weaker vessel, and this is not a statement of a wife's value or ability. The specific vocabulary here refers to the typical woman's lesser physical strength, not to any lack of spiritual strength. And so, on account of her weaker physical capacities, the wife is to be treated actually with greater honor. Consider how your more beautiful and precious possessions are often the things that are more easily damaged. In fact, some of the most useful scientific, industrial, and artistic equipment are the ones that require the most care in their operation. And yet, we don't value them any less. Instead, we take all the greater care of them. So the wife's generally lower physical strength, although I've known women stronger than me. None of them were married to me, I guess, but I've known women stronger than me. This is not an invitation for abuse. Rather, it's cause to handle her with care. Second, the believing wife is a co-heir of grace together with the believing husband. Now at the time Peter wrote this letter, women did not generally inherit property. And yet scripture teaches that women have equal standing with God and thus inherit salvation together with men as co-heirs. For we are all brothers and sisters. We are children of the living God. And so would you treat your physical brother or sister with abuse or unkindness? Would you boss them around and be a tyrant to them? such a thing, I mean, it does happen, but it should be inconceivable. And why would you do this to your wife? Remember that as even as your wife, she is also your sister in Christ. And when we all inherit the kingdom of God, she will cease to be your wife and she will be your sister. The relationship of spiritual blood endures in the kingdom of heaven, but the marriage relationship does not. Christ makes your wife a worthy heir of the kingdom of heaven. Yet in our society, worth is often equated with the exercise of authority. But the scriptures here teach us that worthiness has nothing to do with authority or submission. Consider what we read in 1 Corinthians eleven three: the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. If worth is tied to submission and authority, Paul is saying here that Christ has less worth than God the Father. But Christ's own submission to the Father did nothing to steal his dignity. It did nothing to debase him in comparison to the Father. It only served to enhance his glory. As we read in Hebrews 5, that it was through his obedience that he was made perfect and became the eternal source of salvation to all who obey him. Submission did nothing to reduce Christ's value it does nothing to reduce the value of a wife, for we are all made worthy by the blood of Christ, who is the worthy lamb who was slain. And third, we have the fact that mistreating your wife will hinder your prayers. Now, if the instructions to husbands in this passage are shorter than the instructions to wives, that brevity is more than made up for by the seriousness of this threat. God will not readily listen to your prayers if you abuse your wife. It displeases God very greatly when a husband mistreats his wife. In fact, it displeases God greatly when any authority figure abuses or mistreats anybody uh, in a position of submission to them. The Westminster Larger Catechism teaches that the fifth commandment requires superiors to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to provide for them all things necessary for soul and body. The fifth commandment forbids superiors to seek themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure, to correct their inferiors unduly, or to provoke them to wrath. God did not give you your wife so that you could lord it over her. He takes the abuse of authority very seriously, for he himself uses his authority for your good. You must do likewise." So there we have the twin commands of wives to be subject to their own husbands and husbands to be understanding toward their wives. In so doing, we show godly fear while also respecting the current social order. Now, it's hard to do, but what a great reward it is for even in simply quietly living according to our faith, God gives opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Now, the Greco-Romans meant for the order of marriage to ensure social stability, and that's not bad. But we have far better reasons to have godly marriages, for in godly marriages, we express the character of God for a watching world. Now, I'm not going to tell you that we live in a society that honors marriage in general. You'd actually probably laugh me out of the church if I tried. And yet, even our society in its way, does appreciate a healthy marriage when it sees one. There are loads of public figures who dishonor marriage in all kinds of ways. And yet, every now and again, you do find those celebrity couples who have opened up about the hard but rewarding work of keeping their marriages healthy and strong. I remember a few years ago, uh, I don't know how I came across this, but I heard of an incident where Justin Bieber, of all people, was spotted by paparazzi in tears in a park with his then fiance, now wife, Haley Baldwin. Now there was much speculation that they were splitting up, but a few days later, he explained that they had been reading Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, and they were struggling with how hard marriage would be, and yet how rewarding. I don't know enough about them to endorse their faith or their marriage or even Justin Bieber's music. But this incident gave testimony to the goodness of God in working through marriage. And in fact, as I was, I was checking out this story online to make sure I had the details right, I found an article on Cosmopolitan's website of all places that ran some really excellent quotes from Tim and Kathy Keller's book. Well, the world is a dark place, and yet in its way, it appreciates godliness and wise living more than we sometimes realize. So what if the world saw the gospel more frequently through the lens of Christian marriages? Not marriages completely alien to their way of thinking, for we live in an age where married women have greater opportunities for life in public than they did when Peter wrote this letter. We live in an age where husbands have more expectations to be involved in certain aspects of domestic life and childbearing. It's good to arrange your marriage accordingly, subject to the needs of your own family and the wisdom God has given you. But some things never change because God never changes. And so God has established an order to marriage in which women submit to their husbands And husbands use their authority wisely, gently, and for the good of their families. And in doing so, we show Christ to the world. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for all the many opportunities that you grant us to show Christ to a watching world. And so, Father, for those here who are married now, I pray that you would Bless them with wisdom for how to put these commands into practice in their lives. For those who will be married in the future, I pray that you would be training them up even now, giving them ample opportunities to observe godly marriages in this church and among their friends and family members even outside this church. Father, I pray that in every way you would teach us to be showing the gospel to the world, not only in word, but also in deed.